Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We are here to talk about the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. On July 31st, the LGBT Bar Association joined Lambda Legal and 60 other LGBT organizations in submitting a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee to oppose the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Before entering last week's confirmation hearings, Judge Kavanaugh's record showed no indication that he would decide cases involving discrimination against LGBT people fairly, nor that he would uphold our constitutional rights to equal dignity. Unfortunately, nothing during the confirmation hearing did anything to alleviate our serious concerns. The letter Legal joined, which was authored by Lambda Legal, highlighted our five biggest issues with Judge Kavanaugh's extreme record. We are here this week to talk with uh, Omar Gonzalez-Pagan, senior staff attorney here at Lambda Legal, and a rock star member of the Legal Board of Directors. How you doing, Omar? I'm good. How are you, Eric? Thank you for having me again. Thanks for coming. So I think we're going to go through... um, the Kavanaugh hearing and talk about each one of the five biggest issues that uh, both of our organizations expressed to the Judiciary Committee going in. But let's start out as an initial matter by talking about the lack of transparency and the unprecedented manner in which this confirmation hearing started. We only have access to about 10% of Judge Kavanaugh's record. Really, this is the culmination of the politicization of the judiciary. The uh, Judiciary Committee and the Senate Republican Caucus um, have completely abdicated any pretense of institutional responsibility to the country and the Senate and have completely abdicated any pretense of bipartisanship. Supreme Court nominations, by their very nature, are weighty moments in our history. They are to be handled with the utmost respect and care. That is why how Judge Garland's treatment in 2016 was so abhorrent, how this process is playing out is so abhorrent to our separation of powers and how the judiciary should be composed. It's a race to the finish. Who gets there first, the electorate or the Republicans in the U.S. Senate? And what they're trying to do is to confirm Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court at whatever the cost, to the institutional, um, frankly, trust and respect of the judiciary. And, um, in fact, only 4% of the documents handled by Judge Kavanaugh over his public service career have been released to the public. That has never happened before. Of course, there have been some instances of some limited number of documents being deemed confidential, but never before has there been um, an exercise of executive privilege by an administration in this process. Never before have there been hundreds of thousands of documents deemed committee confidential, let alone one-sidedly by the Senate Judiciary Chairman. And never before has there been a process in which the documents were obtained by the private lawyer for President George W. Bush as opposed to the National Archives. This is a process that has been completely politicized in order to confirm Josh Kavanaugh before what is looking to be a very consequential election in November. This is about actually ensuring a process that will create 
confidence in the public when they're going to the court. And, and here what we have is an abuse of process. Uh, frankly, I don't know that if, if there was not a separation of powers issue here, any court would find that this is not due process of law in terms of how these proceedings are happening. Yeah. I mean, one point that was raised with Judge Kavanaugh was they had released 42,000 pages of documents on the committee just the night, bef- the night before the hearing. And they asked Judge Kavanaugh, you know, would you allow um, this to come to trial if the other side had only seen the documents before the trial on the eve of trial? Or would you postpone? And he, you know, evaded the question. But yes, this I think lacks all, due process. I think all of us litigators know what a docu- document dump looks like, and that's exactly what's going on right now. Um, I, I just simply cannot understand uh, the assertions by the chairman of the Judiciary Committee that he's running a fair process when he knows full well what that looks like, having been in the Senate for generations. Well, so you talked about in the process not instilling confidence uh, that, that people will be treated fairly in Judge Kavanaugh's court. But now let's talk about the actual Substance. record, because I don't think that's going to instill a lot of confidence in certainly not LGBT people, regular working class people, women, other vulnerable minority groups, that even when we look at Judge Kavanaugh's record, that he's going to be able to treat them fairly. So, you know, one of our first and primary concerns with Judge Kavanaugh's record dealt with unenumerated fundamental rights um, and his narrow and cramped interpretation of those rights under the Constitution and how tradition plays into that uh, equation. What we know from Josh Kavanaugh is that he's an avowed originalist, and he claims that his tradition and history test, so when it comes to fundamental rights, that means a faithful adherence to the Glucksburg decision and, and history and tradition as being the source of our fundamental rights. The problem with that view is, sim- is one simple problem. That is that under that view, there are no equal rights for women. There are no equal rights for minorities. African Americans are not viewed as whole people. And forget about what any f- constitutional fundamental rights for um, LGBTQ people because they don't they're completely erased from the Constitution under that test. That is a test that is meant to cement. It is meant to calcify the views of over 200 years ago. It is a retrograde form of living. It is a form in which only those that were privileged 200 years ago will retain privilege today at the expense of anybody who is not like them. And under that view, LGBTQ students get to be criminalized for who they are. That is why that test is so dangerous to anybody who is an other And that is why that test has actually been not applied in Lawrence and explicitly disavowed by the Supreme Court in Obergefell. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I mean, we don't have to guess where uh, Judge Kavanaugh stands on this. Kavanaugh, um, Senator Kamala Harris raised that 
Um, in a speech in 2017, Kavanaugh praised Chief Justice Rehnquist for stemming the tide of the freewheeling creation of unenumerated rights, those rights that do not explicitly appear in the Constitution. And she went through one by one and listed for him each one of these unenumerated rights trying to see if he would say which one of them he viewed as freewheeling and needing to be reined in. The right to vote, to have children, control the upbringing of your children, to refuse medical care, to love the partner of your choice, to marry, to have an abortion. And um, Judge Kavanaugh refused to say which one of those he was talking about. But if you take them you know, individually or as a whole, we're talking about a lot of progress here. We're not just talking about a lot of progress. We're talking about progress for significant amount of people who were seen as others who were oppressed by the majority. And our Constitution is meant to be anti-majoritarian. And um, what you have seen from Judge Kavanaugh is a statement in writing um, and in that speech praising <laughs> Uh, former Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist, where he said all roads re- lead to Glucksburg. And that sounds all fine and good until you realize that he's erasing very clear and explicit um, Supreme Court precedent like Lawrence, which rejected the Lawrence approach, the, the Glucksburg approach, and like Obergefell, which explicitly said that they were disavowing the test in Glucksburg. That is a test meant to ensure the calcification of privilege of some at the expense of others. And, and, and that is a test that, that doesn't recognize that we have a constitutional right to privacy, that doesn't recognize that we have, frankly, liberty or autonomy in our country. And, and, and that is a test that, from which Judge Kavanaugh moves forward. And, and even when you look, it's not just about fundamental rights. Josh Kavanaugh's view about history and tradition is also shown in his opinions about gun control, for example, where he relies on the fact that, well, we don't have a history of tradition and tradition of having assault weapons bans, so therefore assault weapons bans are unconstitutional. First of all, that is not the test that the Supreme Court articulated in Heller or McDonald, but that is also a very ridiculous view. We also didn't have assault weapons in the 1800s and 1700s. So, of course there weren't assault weapons. Right. Well, and he talked about um, the third prong of Heller being whether the the weapon was in common use. Um, And, you know, with someone asked about 3D printing, you know, let's say 3D printing becomes common. Um, Does that mean that you can't ban 3D printed handguns? Um, once they become common use? This, I think several senators shined in this hearing in providing questioning that try to flesh out Josh Kavanaugh's views. Josh Kavanaugh talks about the fact that there needs to be common sense when one is judging. And he was confronted with the question, how is it common sense to uh, allow assault weapons to permeate in our communities. I believe this was Senator Blumenthal who was doing this questioning as being a senator from Connecticut and having lived through the Newtown massacre. And Josh Kavanaugh had no response. 
um, even by his own standard of applying common sense, there is no common sense approach to what he's proposing. Well, let's talk about marriage equality because he was specifically asked by Kamala Harris again about whether he considered Obergefell to be correctly decided, and he chose instead to quote from the majority in Masterpiece Cake Shop to affirm the Supreme Court's precedent of how to weigh the rights of LGBT people, which, besides not answering whether he believed Obergefell was correctly decided, to cite to Masterpiece Cake Shop in response to that question is particularly troubling as well for a whole host of reasons. I, I, I agree, and I think, you know, he kept trying to say that he was applying the standard that other ju- judicial nominees have applied before of not weighing into substantive arguments about what is protected by the Constitution or not, um, because supposedly that would violate ethical norms. First of all, that's not true. It doesn't violate any ethical norms to engage in that thoughtful discussion. That's the type of discussion that he engages himself in when he, whenever he's speaking at some law school or some conference. So to say that he cannot engage in that type of discussion at a Supreme Court hearing um, is, is frankly absurd. But... But shame on all the other judicial nominees that have done that, too, Um, whether Democrat, appointed, or or Republican. I think all of us deserve substantive answers about how these judges will approach the law. And so the idea that he couldn't have weighed in on whether Obergefell was correctly decided is absurd. Well, and to put some of these things in context, Judge Kavanaugh did say Brown v. Board and uh, U.S. v. Nixon were two of the greatest moments in Supreme Court history. And when Kamala Harris said, well, fine, if you won't say if Obergefell was correctly decided, do you view it as one of the greatest moments in Supreme Court history? And he refused to answer that. So the idea that, you know, just because he wasn't taking a position on whether he would say certain cases were correctly decided, he wasn't willing to you know, compare um, in terms of of the impact of particular rulings. And then when you ask about um, whether it was morally wrong to fire somebody, he admitted that it was morally wrong to fire somebody based on the color of their skin, that it would be morally wrong to fire somebody based on their gender, but refused to say that it would be morally wrong to fire someone because they are gay. So again, you've got, you know, him willing to go out on you know, to, to make some pronouncements about where he stands um, on the law and, um, and, and morality, but not when it comes to LGBT people. I think it's, it's um, troubling to note that when it comes to strength of character, um, it's sad when Justice Gorsuch demonstrated more independence and strength of character in his nomination hearing than Judge Kavanaugh. How do you mean? And... Because when asked about whether attacks on the judiciary, including the attacks by President Trump on a district court judge because of his ethnicity, Judge Curiel, um, whether he would denounce them, uh, Justice Gorsuch did denounce said attacks. Judge Kavanaugh refused to. And that speaks volumes about whether this is someone that we can count on to stand up for the independence of the judiciary and to not be a partisan operative um, that works to just simply strengthen the Republican in the White House, um, where he spent a long time on his career in the early odds. Um, This is a judge that demonstrated, frankly, uh, failed the test when it comes to character during his confirmation hearing in many ways. I think his refusal to even 
shake the hand of the father of one of the Parkland, Florida victims is something that truly reveals the character of a person. Whether you actually agree with the person on the issues or not, this is somebody who deserves your empathy and your sympathy. And his refusal to even shake the hand of this person and to actually try to have him thrown out of the hearing. Um, and then to fail to acknowledge the immorality and the, the wrongheadedness of firing somebody because of who they are in terms of sexual orientation or gender identity and failing to denounce attacks on the judiciary all speak to the strength of character of a person. And I don't think Josh Kavanaugh met the test. And whether he actually would agree with us or not on those questions is not what we're debating. I think it's his political maneuvering during this hearing in order to avoid angering the one person that nominated him that really shows where his strength of character lies. There was another moment during this exchange um, that highlighted just the importance of the documents that we don't have before us, and that was um, Judge Kavanaugh was asked about his history of working with the Bush administration when they were trying to pass a constitutional marriage amendment, um, and that the you know the the legis- the bill had passed his desk. He said it would have crossed his desk, um, but refused to say how much he worked on it, whether he provided any feedback, and kind of was able to skate by by saying he didn't recall, he wouldn't know. Look, um, I, I think Josh Kavanaugh has a history of providing less than forthcoming answers to the Senate Judiciary Committee in both the hearings that he had in 2004 and 2006 for his current position. Um, and that was revealed during this process. I leave to others whether to decide whether Josh Kavanaugh engaged in perjury or anything like that. I, I, I don't think we need to delve that deep. The test should be about somebody that's being privileged enough to be named one of nine Supreme Court justices, one of the most transformative governmental bodies and institutions in the history of the world about the rights of individuals in our country. And when you have that privilege, you should be forthcoming. You should be humble enough to approach this process with an, an, an approach that says, this is who I am, this is why I'm so privileged to be taking this on, and I promise to keep an open mind on every issue that comes forward, because my job is to apply the law equitably, fairly, and with justice in mind. And that the fact that his approach was one of evasiveness, one in which he would give technically true lawyerly answers, but incomplete answers that didn't truly reveal the truth, um, says a lot about what he views the Supreme Court as and how he approached this proceeding and the Republicans approached this proceeding. I don't care that Josh Kavanaugh is a good carpool dad or coaches his daughter teams. That is all fine and good. And frankly, all kudos to him for that. We need more parents to be involved in their children's lives that way. I don't care that he's actually a good mentor and boss to some individual that graduated from a fantastic law school like Harvard or Yale. 
that's great too. But I actually care about what he's going to do when somebody is less privileged and he's coming before him in the court and how is he going to approach the law. And we didn't get answers from that, but we got clear indications based just not on his record, but his demeanor during these proceedings that showed to me, at least to me, that his approach to the law and his approach to judging is one of privilege, one of favoring the powerful, and one of favoring the narrowest construction that you can possibly imagine of any constitutional right so that it affects the least, so that it benefits the least amount of people. All right. Well, let's talk about um, Judge Kavanaugh's radical approach to religious freedom, because one of the concerns that we have, um, you know, with this new um, potentially new Supreme Court majority will be the weaponization of the First Amendment to undermine other longstanding protected rights. So we know that when a three judge panel of the D.C. Circuit ruled in Priests for Life that the opt-out form option of the Affordable Care Act, which provided religious nonprofits the ability to opt out of providing contraceptive coverage directly, um, that that opt-out did not violate the freedom, uh, Religious Freedom Re- Restoration Act, or RIFRA. Kavanaugh dissented from that denial by the full court to review the case. Um, so we do have some indication of where um, Judge Kavanaugh would stand on things like providing employers and insurers the ability to deny access to contraceptive coverage to um, to people that need contraceptive coverage. Not just that, we also heard from the confidential documents that were leaked that Judge Kavanaugh was involved in formulating exactly that, um, in formulating a religious exemption for federal contractors when it came to non-discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity during the Bush administration. I want to be careful here to actually emphasize that this is not about just abuse and misuse of the First Amendment. This is about the entrenchment of a of a particular religious view in our society. This isn't an, an even-handed, fair approach that will put religion, all religions above constitutional rights. It's not even that, which is dangerous in and of itself. Right. It is an approach that will put a particular religious view above all other constitutional rights. It is the establishment in our country, and I want to be very emphatic about this, it is the establishment and the culmination of, of a, a long advocacy by some groups of a theocracy in our country. Our country was first and foremost founded with the principle of religious freedom, with the principle of not having one view be um, adopted and exalted by the government. And uh, frankly, what is happening under this administration and what Josh Kavanaugh's record has been, has been one of doing just that. Frankly, not only is it dangerous, to all of us who face discrimination in this country because of who we are and it's excuse sometimes about religion. Um, but it is truly a dangerous proposition for anybody who has experience being in a minority religion 
or be or not having any religion at all. And what does Judge Kavanaugh's approach in Priests for Life tell us about how he would approach some of these same opt-outs when it comes to treating LGBT people fairly? So Judge Kavanaugh has never decided a case having to do with LGBTQ rights that we know of. Um, but we know about his approach. It's not just in Priests for Life, actually. Um, and this is very similar to Justice Gorsuch. The very idea that signing a form makes you complicit in action that will violate your religious rights is frankly absurd. Um, and it is one that has been adopted by Justice Gorsuch previously and now by Judge Kavanaugh in, in, in the cases that they decided. Having the, the, Both of them were in the courts uh, deciding these issues and he went up to the Supreme Court um, but it deadlocked 4-4. And um, so we have that going on, but we also know his view about complicity. And he talks about complicity in the context of the government, the government being complicit in the provision of abortion to a minor in its care. And how this that is can the Garza be. Case. This is can the you Garza step back case. and give us a little bit of a history of what we're talking about with this case? So the Garza case is the case in which unaccompanied minors are in HHS custody. And um, unaccompanied minors meaning minors that cross the border um, undocumented and uh, because they are minors and don't have family are put in the custody and care of the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, This is a program run under the Office of Refugee Programs and the current head of ORR is a man who ha- is extremely anti-abortion and has uh, set a policy that he needs to personally approve any abortion procedure for any minor in their care. Um, the Garza case it was brought by the guardian ad litem for Jane Doe, a female who was 17 years old who was seeking to have an abortion. Not only had Jane Doe gone through the extremely onerous procedures already set forth by law in Texas. Texas, right. Texas of all places. Right. And obtained a, and obtained a judge order allowing her to consent to the adjud- and, and this a, is abortion on her own. The four-star ultrasound, the 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 pre- crisis pregnancy centers. All of those ridiculous trap requirements set forth by Texas, Jane Doe had complied with. And even then, uh, the HHS refused to allow Jane Doe to obtain her abortion, privately paid for at a private facility. They just simply needed to transport her there because she's in their custody. And they refused to do that. And the question was whether they could transport her. And Judge Kavanaugh said that that was being complicit in abortion. Again, the government, which has no view on abortion or religion, right? It's supposed to be neutral. Um, And that, therefore, that was enough to delay the ability of Jane to obtain that pregnancy. And and he called it abortion on demand. Um, Look, there's a clearly established precedent here. I think Professor Melissa Murray from NYU gave incredibly thoughtful and detailed testimony about how Judge Kavanaugh's approach to the Jane Doe case, frankly, was um, ignorant of all of the recent precedent and old precedent 
And so it, it not only ignored the fact that minors don't need parental consent to obtain a, a an abortion. They can obtain a judicial bypass. Which she did. But it also ignored the fact that Whole Woman's Health B. Heller said showed that you the, the courts need to weigh the harm to the woman being affected when considering regulating abortion. And he didn't do that. And and he's he, he talks about faithful adherence to precedent, um, but this was one example of which he didn't. And it was emblematic both of his approach to fundamental rights to which he disagreed with, as well as his approach um, on religious objections. Okay, so let's move on to health care specifically. Um, during the hearing, Senator Whitehouse asked Kavanaugh directly about whether he would uphold protections for people with pre-existing conditions, and Kavanaugh refused to answer. Judge Kavanaugh dissented from rulings upholding the Affordable Care Act, which supplies health care coverage for millions of the most vulnerable people and provides unprecedented federal protections for LGBTQ people. Um, is, is, the, is, is the ACA in trouble again? Um, what about uh, people with pre-existing conditions? What about his further view that of, un, of president, uh, presidential power, which seems to afford a president the ability to unilaterally, unilaterally declare a law unconstitutional and refuse to enforce it? Um, which would also put protections for LGBTQ people um, and access to their health care at risk. Um, wh- where where do things stand with Kavanaugh now? So I think this would be a question about statutory construction. Um, all of the cases having to do with the ACA, ultimately, the original challenge had to do with whether there was the actual constitutional power to enact the mandate and the law. Um, let me be clear the non-discrimination provisions of the Affordable Care Act are not an issue in any of these cases. They will remain in place. Um, So I just want to take that and emphasize that for our community. Section 1557, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex and the provision of health care by federal statute, that is not an issue. That is not at play in any of these cases. There, the ICA has a several severability provision. That is not something that we need to be concerned about. What we have to be concerned about is about the ability to uh, both uh, the guarantee issue provision as well as the um, the provision mandating specific coverage with regards to pre-existing conditions and others. The reality here is that this will come down to the views on statutory construction and severability of Josh Kavanaugh. We didn't delve, obviously, deep into those questions, but what we do know is he has a history of ruling against the Affordable Care Act. He has a history of ruling against any type of governmental regulation, whether environmental or health. And so in that form, um, we, we should be worried. And there is no guarantee that we will have a justice that will weigh the harms that will be imposed upon millions and millions of people when he is deciding this question. The last kind of big concern that we had was a general one, um, which was Judge Kavanaugh's propensity for supporting the interests of rich and powerful 
economic interests over the well-being of economically vulnerable communities. And I think where for our community this manifests um, in particular is when we think about um, employment discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. We have cases that are currently pending before the Supreme Court uh, about um, the interpretation of Title VII and whether it applies to um, uh, to our community and protects them from discrimination. Can you talk about our concerns here? I think, you know, we've talked about this in in every possible aspect in terms of its approach to the law is one that has always favored those interests that which have the most power. Um, and that means economic interest, that means corporations, that means um, white people, that means cisgender people, that means straight people, that means men over women, and um, and, and and even when he says he's proud of a decision, um, he, he, one must remain flabbergasted uh, <laughs> that he's proud of a decision, for example, in the voting rights context. Yes, I knew what you in, were going for. In which he says, I am proud of that decision because we sort of force the state to include a waiver process for a voter ID requirement in South Carolina. And the reality is that he ultimately sided with South Carolina and upheld the voter ID requirement. He didn't acknowledge the racism that was occurring. Um, he didn't actually remedy it. Um, and, and his purported adjustment of what South Carolina was doing um, didn't work in, in any practical sense. In fact, Senator Booker confronted him with how that had been uh, how that worked in in real life after he decided that this uh, made that decision and how a man had been denied the right to vote even after multiple multiple uh, attempts to do it and how the, even assuming the process worked which it didn't really the man ultimately was imposed a poll tax because of the cost of going through that waiver of compliance with with the voter ID law, and and that waiver that that he created is the establishment of provisional ballots, which are mostly not counted, um, and 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 already tells to people that your vote is is lesser than other votes, and so, um, but that that was a decision that Judge Kavanaugh said, I'm proud of that decision explicitly in his testimony, that should be an alarm, for any person who advocates for voting rights, any person who advocates for equality, because if, if the decision that he's most proud of, proud of in the context of racial discrimination is one in which he upheld a voter ID law, that is disturbing. All right, so I think let's end with perhaps we had some really, um, some really big stars in this... Um, in this hearing, I think for me, I loved seeing Maisie Hirono um, question Judge Kavanaugh, particularly about um, the Me Too movement, and um, and of course, you know, one of Judge Kavanaugh's mentors was Judge Kaczynski, who um, we know uh, has has sexually harassed clerks in the past. Um, 
And she really tried to get to, you know, the very core of what he believed about uh, sexual harassment. Um, and then I, I think some of the questioning by Kamala Harris to actually pin down, uh, you know, where he stood on particular cases, unenumerated rights. Um, what did you think? Any, anybody stand out to you? Well, I mean, I think you talked about the people who stand, who stood out in terms of the questioning. I thought the most effective questioner by far was Kamala Harris. Um, I, I thought Judge uh, Senator Booker did a great job highlighting Judge Kavanaugh's record. Um, and I thought uh, Senator Hirono was just incredible. She's been a shining light in the Judiciary Committee. Um, note that all three of them are minorities yeah. in the Judiciary Committee, the only three minorities in the Judiciary Committee, and all three of them are the three most junior Democratic senators. Um, they were not the stars for me of this confirmation hearing. The stars for me were mm. Elizabeth Weintraub, a disabled um, woman who spoke about how Josh Kavanaugh threatened her autonomy as a human being. They were Rochelle Garza, who spoke about her experience representing Jane Doe and how Josh Kavanaugh's view of the Constitution actually would be detrimental to the rights of women and fa failed to uphold the constitutional rights of Jane Doe. They were Alicia Baker, a woman who was denied contraceptive care mandated by the Affordable Care Act because her of her employer's religion and how that cost her and her family and while they were fortunate enough to be able to pay for it not other other people would not be um the fact and i should note that just as a side note that Judge kavanaugh called contraception abortion inducing drugs let's just sidestep and note that both the ideological ideological base language that that is but also how completely wrong and on, based on fact and science that is. Um, they include Alaya Eastman, a survivor from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School from the Parkland shooting, who spoke about the horrendous experience she, experienced, she, she lived through. One, and she prayed that if a bullet hit her, it would go through her head so she wouldn't feel pain. They include... Melissa Smith, a public high school teacher in Oklahoma that spoke about the importance of non-discrimination for her kids and how they need to be protected. They include Hunter Lachance, a high school sophomore from Maine who was speaking about the importance of environmental regulation as a boy who lived with asthma and how the very regulations that Josh Kavanaugh has completely eviscerated as a judge in the district circuit are meant to protect his life and the life of others. And they include Jackson Corbin, who spoke about the importance of the Affordable Care Act and its protections in ensuring that he has access to health care. And those are just a series of examples of, I think, the witnesses that shined on Friday of the confirmation hearings and through this process because ultimately they did what Josh Kavanaugh refused to do, which was speak from the heart about the importance of this confirmation and what it means for the lives of people.
Every Supreme Court nomination is one of extreme importance for a country, our future, and the constitutional rights of people. And um, it should be a matter of the utmost seriousness and the utmost care. This process has been completely mangled, completely destroyed, and completely abused. And I think everybody should just simply be calling their senator um, and demand a fair process. We should at least wait until the National Archives produces the rest of the document that even Chairman Grassley requested and has not received. And, 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 and there is absolutely no reason other than political partisanship for this nomination to be rushed. And at the very least, we should be demanding a fair, judicious process. And for our community, we should consider that this is a replacement for Justice Kennedy, who has authored Romer, Lawrence, Windsor, Obergefell. Everything is on the line for LGBTQ people. This is how many times have we talked about Justice Kennedy on this podcast? Um, this is just too important to stay on the sidelines, and the time is now. So if you're going to speak out, if you're going to get out in the streets or get on the phone or do a sit-in in your senator's office, now is the time. Thank you so much, Omar, for joining us today to talk about the Supreme Court and to talk about Judge Kavanaugh. Um, we will be back, I don't know, soon. <laughs> there is always something to talk about in this day and age, but um, as always, a pleasure, and thank you, Eric, for this service. I think it's important to talk about these issues and for the community, our community, both LGBT and legal community, to be involved. Thank you.